So you could potentially be deploying a search and rescue force from orbit to any spot on the planet in minutes. And hmm. that can make a difference. And potentially yeah. faster if you don't send humans. You know, right. robots can handle way more acceleration and are, of course, expendable. So you might be dropping some kind of beacon to someone's location. Rescue service in 60 seconds or less, no matter where you are. We're back with another episode of the Cold Star Project. And we're now focusing on small sats and space. And my guest today is Isaac Arthur. Hey, <laughs> so awesome hey, to see you again. Back you bet. Uh, I've had you on six, seven months ago, something like that. It was a great episode, I think, about uh, launching space infrastructure and getting things started. And I've uh, since focused on small sets. And I wanted you back on first of all because we agreed to do it. And I want you on every time you want to be on. Um, <laughs> but we don't, we don't want to be too frequent. Uh, and for those who don't know, uh, Isaac here runs the YouTube channel Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, um, which is a great name for it because, you know, you are the, the host. And... <laughs> It is the best science uh, explanation and kind of conceptual exploration channel on YouTube around. I love it. And uh, I just, this morning I was watching the, um, the futuristic search and rescue video. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, wow, I picked up a few things from there that I hadn't really thought about, which is why I encourage everyone I run into who's interested in space or futurism to run over there and check that out. So Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, and I'll definitely mention it again before the end of the show. So what I was hoping we could talk about today is a little bit around small sets, and I know you're not a small set expert. However, uh, what I want to appeal to is your generosity in the futurism side of things, and maybe you could talk to us from that perspective about these questions. So let's, let's dig right into it. Um, we're, we're entering into an era, Elon Musk could not have helped me out more by uh, proposing you know something like 42,000 uh, satellites being kicked into orbit over the next few years and that so with that kind of manufacturing and these satellites are only going to last three four five years burn up and then need to be replaced with uh, with new versions which is kind of cool and I imagine there's going to be the, the operations management guy in me imagines there's going to be economies of scale and good manufacturing processes which we at Cold Star help to uh, provide what is about to happen with more small sets being put into orbit and that? What kind of problems do you predict that we're going to see? I suppose the first most obvious one, assuming the market for it develops so we can actually start getting 40,000, 50,000 satellites up there, mm -hmm. is that you're going to, I mean, ideally you design these things to deorbit nice and smoothly so they burn up. But that's a lot of clutter to have up in space. Mm -hmm. That is a huge volume of space, so it's you know even 40, 50,000 things aren't very likely to run into each other, even zipping around several times a day around the planet. But at the same time, when one starts to break up, if it's not breaking up properly, if it's not being knocked down, you could end up quite a lot of clutter there. Mm -hmm. And that could lead to Kessler syndrome, which mm -hmm. is a situation where you have a big cloud of orbiting debris flying around the planet. And what's um, tricky conceptually about uh, that is that little bits of debris flying around the planet are moving at uh, a couple dozen times the speed of sound. So even a little tiny nail the size of your finger is going to blast through, you know, a, a battle tank. It, it's that, you know, much power that's going on such thing. And um, that's going to cause a lot of problems if there is any serious amount of debris there. And it's not that that's a very resolvable issue, but I'd say it's more of a quality control thing. The whole idea of CubeSats and SmallSats, MicroSats, is that you can mass produce these things and almost anybody can mass produce them and they're cheap, right? right? Which means that it becomes a competitive market, which means that people who aren't necessarily doing their quality control as well 
uh, might start launching stuff up there that breaks down a little better. Mm. And that wouldn't be very likely to be causing a civilization wrecking scenario, I suppose, when you think about it. Same as, uh, you know, you get something short, something like that in space, you start having regulations and fines. And uh, I don't know who you'd actually be having regulate such fines for, you know, putting up bad CubeSats debris, uh, since it's not like they'd be over any one individual country unless it was a geostationary orbit. Um, but, uh, you know, that would probably be how you'd deal with that. You'd have to start fining people for bad construction, so they're not just cutting corners. Makes sense. <laughs> so I wanted to get into a little bit about tracking. We've got Leo Labs, and, and I've had some guests on who we've talked about various ideas that they've got business ideas for tracking some with a device some by seeing are there any potential issues that you're aware of with with tracking of all these small sets they are definitely trackable but you know the thing is um the smaller an object is obviously the harder mm. it is to pick up and that's a cross-section thing when you're trying to pick up something at the space shuttle mm. and that's naked eye visible you know when it's orbiting the planet same as the space station is um Little CubeSat the size of a coffee cup is a much harder object to track, uh, especially because you have to be in control. You're using a frequency radar that lets you, that has a smaller wavelength than the actual object does. Otherwise, you get a very blurry hit, mm. and you can't necessarily track its vector too well off of that. Uh, although that's certainly a manageable issue. Uh, for one thing, you can start putting up CubeSats that were nothing but radars. Um, but uh, if you have a lot of these going on there, and again, that's that Kessler syndrome issue. If you're not able to track mm -hmm. these things too well, because there's just so many of them, you start getting that enhanced probability of something going kaboom. And uh, you know, that could be a bit of an issue, but it's, it's a resolvable one. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to knock the idea too much. It's a great idea doing mm -hmm. microsats, but at the same time, it does represent a few new challenges. Okay. And one of those is trying to keep track of all of them. Right. So we could use a ground-based system, a terrestrial system. We could put something up in orbit, uh, maybe at a higher orbit, to look down and track these things. Sure. Um, there's a lot of ways hmm. to track an object like that. And they're not, I mean, it's, it's not that hard to get a hit on something that's only a few hundred kilometers off the ground. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just one of those situations where most of our existing radar isn't really designed with that in mind. Uh, quite the contrary. We usually try to make sure the radar does not pick up objects the size of a board. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, okay. so it has to come with its own new infrastructure for something like that, but not, not a prohibitive one per se. Huh. And again, the, there's the other issues. These things don't last as long. So you've right. got more of these objects. They decay faster. They're being launched cheaply. You know, it's it's not likely they're going to come with big bases and support themselves either. So you you know, like right now, you can rely on NASA or ESA or some of the other ones to actually keep track of their stuff. Uh, you got a small company that's a startup launching CubeSats mm -hmm. that goes out of business. <laughs> yeah, who's who's watching their stuff, right? And, and yeah, I got into a conversation with some folks in the space insurance industry um, this week and last week about it, and because somebody had written an article, a pretty good article, it had some you know, mediocre kind of uh, principles, you know, or, or constants that they were thinking of, like million dollars per satellite is not a, a real cost, you know, that's going to be bearable. Mm -hmm. But it did raise the question, and I got the impression that a lot of these folks had, including me, had not thought about the tracking problem mm -hmm. uh, and the economics and that. And, and uh, of course, the business guy in me says, well, the end customer is going to pay for tracking. Sooner or later, that's who always pays, right? And so do you build that into the subscription and then a slice of that comes off and pays Leo Labs or something to keep these things 
you know, it on could record. Be a case, though, it's a little bit like aircraft control. And I mind you, I don't mm-hmm. know off the top of my head how aircraft control was actually funded. I assume mm-hmm. the, the actual air industry pays a big chunk of that, but I'm assuming there's also a fair amount that's, uh, I would say, government subsidy, mm-hmm. but handled by the government. And uh, you, you might get a case where NASA was tracking all this stuff anyway, or a space defense thing, or whichever country. And they might uh, have a cost they attached to it that was cheaper than trying to do it on your own. But, but uh, And they might do that just to make sure these things stay tracking. Because, again, mm. if you're doing this on a margin, you, you got slim margins, you start going out of business, you start cutting right. down on your tracking force because your ability to track your satellite if it's damaged is not as important to you uh, in terms of making sure the business keeps running. Uh, unless there's a very punitive fines associated with blowing mm-hmm. a hole in the size of the else's equipment. Right. <laughs> well, so that I guess that would get kind of cut corner on something like that too. Right. So maybe that's a place where insurance could go into mm-hmm. as well as creating a, a bag of money at the end of life of the whole thing mm-hmm. to clean up. So what other debris cleanup problems do you see and, and maybe some solutions? I mean, do we have to get some sort of vehicle into orbit to, to gobble up all this trash or what? Not necessarily. The, there are a number of ways you could do that, including the use of nuclear weapons. <laughs> but probably the best one we've got on the table right now, especially if we start developing uh, you know, more, uh, more resistant uh, solar panels that can operate well in space, uh, although it can be a ground-based system too, um, would be to have a laser broom, as it's called. Hmm. And a laser broom, it, it, it sweeps the area clean, but uh, people might think you'll vaporize the objects. That's not what you're doing. You're using a laser to, one, make sure you got a solid hit on where it's actually at. And then two, you ramp up the power and you burn a little bit off the side of it. And of course, you're burning a little bit off the side of an object in space that's creating thrust. It's a little bit of a rocket flame. So you tap it on the side, and this is why you prefer to have one higher in orbit as opposed to you know ground-based. Mm-hmm. You give it a little push so it, it deorbits that piece of debris. Uh, and then you just let the atmosphere do the rest of the work. Um, but uh, that's that's a laser broom. It's basically an ablative concept. You ablate a little bit of material off it. And that's, we talk about using a laser to get rid of a comet or asteroid coming towards us. the same idea, too. You're not death starring the entire thing. You're burning material off a side of it to act as a little bit of a rocket flame pushing it in, in, in a given direction okay. and uh, to the course that you would for to have. Um, which is actually a, an interesting way of uh, kind of tractor beaming something like a comet in is you could set up something on the other side of it that uh, was absorbing being shot out way in deep space. Instead of pushing it away, you let it evaporate with that energy, a rocket tail that pushed it towards your destination. But mm-hmm. uh, you start to send something out there as a basic package, of course. Um, but that kind of laser boom technology is likely to be the big one that gets used um, with the slight problem that you're likely to, I mean, if you're doing it, in orbit, I suspect you probably have defense trees that insisted that the laser has to be a frequency that blooms really badly in the atmosphere or gets absorbed really heavy in the atmosphere and mm-hmm. cannot be above such and such a wattage um, in order to prevent people from deciding to ablate a city, for instance. <laughs> right. Or, well, yeah, I mean, you better trust who it is, too, because you don't want them aiming the laser broom at the, the wrong target. <laughs> now, mind you, in most of these cases, you'd be talking about something designed to basically get us something the size of a coffee cup. So it's not like it's going to be, you know, blowing okay. up a city. But, of course, we got one up there for asteroids, a different story. And if you got mm-hmm. thousands of those in, in operation, mm-hmm. you know, with like millions of pieces of, of space junk, then you might have something that people start using as a weapon platform. Uh, now, that's not to say that sort of thing is probably going to happen eventually. If you're going to go up in space, you're eventually going to put weapons up there too. But uh, I think in the short term, that would be one of those other 
issues that got in the way. And, uh, you know, you got insurance in play, you got business models, you've got legal concerns too. And of course, something you need business is going to have to deal with there is legal issues and paying their lawyers because there's going to likely be an awful lot of problems with that. Right, right. And I've got a couple of space lawyers uh, coming on in the next few weeks. So I'll be able to ask them poignant questions about this topic and see how they respond. <laughs> that should be lots of fun. Let's move into search and rescue and life-saving operations. We're going to have all these constellations in, in, in orbit and they're going to be able to let us see things and have connectivity that we didn't have. And, uh, you know, there's I watch all sorts of YouTube channels. I'm not a big TV guy, but I enjoy Odyssey type things where some guy takes a sailboat and sails it across the Pacific or something. And these guys, they get out of communication frequently and uh, get stuck and they've got sail power and that's it. And they're out there for a week or two without any connection to anybody. And then they're real excited because some red helicopter flies over top to check on them in regular radio range and that. So what, what is going to happen here? Do you think somebody had floated at sea for like two years and then part of the time there's somebody else with them for they got rescued. I can't remember the fellows. But, uh, you know, in the old days you were, if you were lucky, you might see a ship pass by on the horizon and somehow be able to flag it down. Nowadays, it's a lot harder to get lost if you are in anything that's actually being tracked, which is not necessarily a private, Mm. you know, ship. Right. Um, but we still lost planes. Um, applications of space that are actually useful on earth uh non-scientific ones one of those is obviously tracking military use it for that we use it for gps and things like that and you got a couple of different angles you can use on that one of course is is your actual personal survival gear if you've got wi-fi satellites over the entire planet you know passing overhead units it's relatively lower coverage over the poles you still have things orbiting on those vectors then all of a sudden if you got nice cheap solar panels and durable batteries you can flag yourself down a signal, and that's a GPS plus rescue beacon right there. And that's on that side of things where you're basically your survival gear. If that is lost or broken, then what a bunch of CubeSats or just mini, mini surveillance satellites offer us is the ability to start tracking people. Hmm. Now, that, of course, is one of those examples of technology that maybe we really don't want in place too much because, you know, we don't really lose that many people. And if you got the mm. coverage for that, what are those satellites doing in the meantime? Who are they looking at? Is it mm. your backyard? You know? um, but there are, there are certain limitations on how much something like that would seem to be worth if you even a camera. The thing is, and, and I imagine some folks have heard of what's called the FINDER project. I can't remember what the actual acronym FINDER means, but it was a, a combination that was done by uh, NASA and DARPA to use microwaves as a uh, ground-penetrating radar as a way of basically doing a life science detector. Hmm. And think about those, those very tiny frequencies of, of uh, you know, microwaves, they penetrate through rock really well. And, uh, and we're talking about something that's no stronger than a Wi-Fi signal to search an area of several hundred feet, right? Um, you have little tiny changes in, in your body when your heart beats or when your lungs move, and that picks up on a radar signal as a very specific signal. Uh, so we can hunt for people and find them under 30, 40 meters of collapsed debris. Hmm. Uh, now that has to do with how much debris is in the way and you can ramp that signal up. But when I say ramp that signal up, it's not just so it can penetrate the ground, but it's so that you can do it from way further away. You can focus the beam in pretty good, but you can also just increase the power level. So you could have microwave, uh, um, satellites that were able to have no problem, not just seeing somebody on a a ship that was floating around, but actually being able to spot somebody buried underneath debris or buried in Mm -hmm. in the middle of a forest, things like that, that would not be optically visible. Mm -hmm. And, okay. 
that would potentially be a very powerful search and rescue technology. And I guess the other one, it's a little bit more high tech, a little bit more futuristic is we actually start dispatching rescue services from space. Hmm. Um, because while you would almost always think you'd have some place, you know, probably maybe Antarctica, where you had a rescue station a lot closer than a couple hundred kilometers up in space, in space you can just fall right down. And more importantly, you can accelerate down too if you want to break towards the end. So you could potentially be deploying a search and rescue force from orbit uh, to any spot on the planet in minutes. And hmm. that can make a difference. And potentially yeah. faster if you don't send humans. You know, right. Robots can handle way more acceleration and, of course, expendable. So you might be dropping some kind of beacon to someone's location, you know, as fa- you know, rescue service in 60 seconds or less, no matter where you are. And hmm. uh, that's the sort of thing that would be insanely expensive to contemplate right now and would be pretty expensive, I think, even if you had a much more developed infrastructure in space. But, you know, the amount of stuff we do for emergency services these days compared to what it was when I was a kid, let alone a century and a half ago, is, is a lot different. If the society is mm-hmm. prosperous enough, they got no problem blowing a billion dollars to go rescue a few folks. And uh, we'll see how that develops. But that, that's a that century off or more. Right. Well, the idea today of being able to detect life signs underneath a collapsed building or in a coal mine or something is really, yeah. um, you know, that happens. Yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> it happens. And, and also, I really like the idea from the connectivity of not just, oh, we can, they can see where we are, but they can also send us, mm-hmm. uh, if not a, a robot, some information, right? Like communicate hey, I've got this problem. Okay, here's how you solve it. Even sending a video or something, right? Which is a... And that's the that increase in portable technology kind of aspect of things. Mm-hmm. You say, what's, what changes to emergency stuff? And of course, the most important aspect of any sort of emergency crisis is, is that will to survive, followed by mm-hmm. the knowledge and then the equipment, right? Um, and, and But if you've got enough equipment, it helps to handle most of those other crises. Hmm. Whereas we get better with things like that when everyone's got a smartphone or a little implant in the air they talk on or whatever it is. Um, no one's ever out of communication. And even if they do somehow hit a dead zone, you know, they are being tracked in some fashion, even if it's nice and private and they're on their own personal thing. And someone's going to have a, the equivalent of a dead man switch. My signal's been off for a minute. Send a, a monthly note to the police. And just the sheer amount of data you have on that, not only do you know where they were when they left, mm-hmm. but you know everybody who went in or out of that spot too. You could probably subpoena that if you needed to, even with privacy rules in place. And now you know there's 100 people who went in that area, where are they at? You know? mm. And uh, that is insanely useful for solving crimes, emergencies, and many other things. So, mm. Although, again, a bit of a privacy <laughs> The big issue. brother side of things, yeah. Starts to get a little scary. No, okay. Huh. So I think in a case like that, one would guess you'd probably have exactly that as a subpoena kind of situation where if it was mandatorily provided, you had to, you know, quickly call up a judge and say, hey, we need to, you know, pull everyone's ID from this, you know, 300 foot radius. Hmm. Um, and uh, that's, a, I, that's not the nicest idea either, but that's, I think, a lot more tolerable uh, in terms of cost for security than, uh, than just the ability to say, oh, flip on the cameras. Who's there? Right, right. Yeah, it can't be open season. Yeah, and of course, the other thing is, while while the satellites will not see through your ceiling, the microwave ones would. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Interesting. So I'm having a few guests on who are interested in uh, launch vehicles and making these launch vehicles smaller, cheaper, uh, and and 
their capacity will be lower. Obviously, they'll be able to send up eight or a dozen small sats instead of a hundred. You know, as a ride share with uh, with the larger payload. What do you see just with your futurist hat on again over the next two or three decades in industry developing for continuous launches? Hmm. What's that going to look like with spaceports, maybe, and and vehicles? If we're talking about unmanned, um, I mean, one problem with a spaceport is that it, it usually cannot be near any city if it's actually using mm. rocket launches. The, the, the speeds okay. involved cause a supersonic blast, not to mention anyone's <laughs> been near York Cape and Apple. That's, that's mm. a very loud thing. And even a small little rocket is still pretty loud. Um, we do have some options around that, though. And, I mean, obviously, you can have dedicated spaceports that are on the coast far from anybody else, although coasts are valuable property. So that might be where you say, I would like to set up a launch on a floating you know ship and that might get you a lot of the uh i can't remember what the group's called but uh there's always interesting micro nations that are set up at sea seasteading i think we did an episode on that i was talking about episodes these days <laughs> um but the other option is if you're doing unmanned pods uh many of those would be materials that could handle a much higher acceleration rate than than a human could some would not be though but for the ones that were, you might get a, be able to do a bulk transport for um, using a mass driver or rail gun. And um, you, know, you have some kilometer long gun that accelerates up at 30, 40 Gs up to, up to orbital velocity and just through them. And that might let you do some very bulk launches because that sort of thing is very cheap. You know, it, it's, there's a big capital cost in putting something like that up. Hmm. Um, but if you're using it nonstop, it's the same concept as a freight train. Right? Mm -hmm. And of course, we have more far-ranging things like orbital rings that might take that position even more thoroughly. But you don't build a transit line to the Oregon uh, until after you've already colonized it. First, you got to go the Pioneer route. Same for freeways. You don't put those in there. There are a lot of ways to bring launch costs down a lot. And we were starting to have to look at some of those um, until SpaceX actually came by with the usable rockets and really made that uh, a lot cheaper mm -hmm. launch cost. Um, we'll still have to start looking at some of those things because in the end, there's a limit to what you can do with chemistry. But um, for right now, the reusable rocket has made it a lot easier to put out some of those projects, which has a downside. Sometimes a very good technology makes other things uh, that were viable or not viable for research anymore. But we'll get back to those, I think, at some point. Mm -hmm. In terms of spaceports, though, it's it's so hard to say. I think for a lot of those, you probably would see the island-based ones getting used a lot, um, or those countries that had a reasonably close location to the equator and also happen to have uh, eastern coast real estate that they weren't really using, because no one's going to let you launch, you know, commercial rockets uh, over populated areas. Right. They're not going to be too thrilled about doing that, even for like nationally covered ones. But. Uh, Say I like business, but I I I I don't think I trust them to be accountable for launching a uh, very powerful rocket over the place where I lived. <laughs> mm -hmm. Very very true. What do you think about jobs? People moving into jobs centered around space, either manufacturing or piloting or even tourism. Is that going to be a thing in our lifetime, or are we going to have to wait for that? To some degree, it already is. I mean, aerospace is already a pretty big industry, yeah. even just limited to the space component. I, I don't know what the satellite business runs, but it's got to be in the billions a year. Um, and uh, that's only going to go up. Um, as to which ones are an option, if you start getting the point that you have space hotels, relatively cheap launch mm -hmm. costs in space hotels, and we could do that. That is potentially the point where you get to the way you can launch for, say, $100 a kilogram, which is 
on the extreme end of what you could do with a rocket, really. Um, you know, potentially cheaper fuels and really good for usability. At $100 a kilogram, that means a person can go up with their cargo, their personal launch bag for 10000 bucks. You know, uh, at that point in time, that becomes a massive tourist industry. Mm-hmm. But even at $1,000 a kilogram, there are a lot of folks who could afford $100,000 for a trip to space. And if you're doing that, you might want your own personalized spacesuit, right? Um, and, uh, you know, that becomes quite the designer thing. After all, one is going up there to take photos. Um, you'd have, I would say, <clears throat> I mean, it, it could be a bit of a thing for the fashion industry, but yeah. <laughs> uh, that would be a long time coming as any more than a niche application. Although when you think about it, a lot of the fashion industry already is niche applications. Um, in terms of jobs, so I'd say the big one for people who are actually working in space would probably be telepresence early on. In any kind of space station, you'd have presumably people who were on site, but it's so much easier to have a robot um, that is specified to that task that is expendable, that is probably lighter than a human, and that can be operated 24 hours a day by three different operators as they go into their own shifts. Mm-hmm. And while you're close to the moon or closer in orbit, you really have no signal time. Um, you know, it's in that case, the biggest problem is that you have to bounce the signal around the planet. If, uh, if there's somebody in the way, you know, if you got, if it's on the wrong side of the planet every 90 right. minutes or whatever, but that's hardly a big time signal lag. So telepresence operators, but that's a market that's already probably going to be expanding with us anyway. You know, I think telepresence, it's nice to be able to automate simple tasks, but at the same time, there's going to be a lot of things where telepresence is what's going on. You automate somebody to mow your lawn, you use a robot for that. But when it comes to many of the other guarding things, it might be cheaper to have a person telepresently operating um, the weeding machine or whatever it is. Mm. Same applies for space. Um, and I think in terms of which actual big businesses there would be that were actually people in space, not on, not on the engineering side or the resource side or the actual launch facility side, although you certainly have a lot of personnel for that and probably a lot more on the ground than actually up in space. Um, you know, it's really hard to say. I think you have probably a lot of folks who basically jack of all trades because mm. in a lot of these things, what you're going to need is a few people they are here, they are, that are on site and who are very good at taking instructions, which means they, need, they know just enough about it to be competent and, and be able to hear somebody say, turn the screwdriver, no, the other screwdriver on that bolt right there, you know, 10 times without getting nervous or freaked out by the fact that it's venting air or, you know, apply pressure to that wound right there. You know? mm. So that would be a pretty, pretty big example. They would probably be folks like that for like folks who didn't have a major skill set. That's probably right. the easiest bound to space would be that jack of all trades kind of person who was really huh. good at following instructions and staying calm. Right. Yes, staying calm. It's funny how emotional this stuff is still, even with all the engineering. So some terrestrial-based person can be the subject matter expert, and they can direct. That the, is kind of what uh, I'll ask person. Yeah. I mean, now a lot of them have doctorates, of course, too, but that's because mm-hmm. we can afford to have the absolute cream of the crop. But for the most part, the, uh, you know, your astronaut's main job is to be able to stay calm Mm-hmm. and know enough to be able to take instructions. <laughs> I remember the Soviets went a different route in that. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't educate their people up quite the same way, at least early on. Well, let's finish up here. I, I can imagine 
small sats, which, which I love and, and we're focused on at the moment, uh, going up, becoming a technology, and much the same way that like when the telephone came out, it was originally wired technology and then moved to cellular towers, right, and, and a network. I can imagine small sats being replaced by some technology in the future, and I'm wondering if you have any ideas about that. Small sets being replaced by other technology? Yeah, some a different kind of technology. Um, to a degree, I'd say probably, yeah. The, the big advantage of the small set, and I wouldn't replace it entirely more than mm -hmm. television replaced radio. You know, there's niche applications. Right. The big advantage, the attractive advantage to the microsat these days is that it's a really cheap way to get your experiment set up on your timeline and to your specifications. If you've got multiple space stations up there that um, mm -hmm. that basically serve as you know, storage sites for these things, but they can provide a little bit of tending. Again, something for that jack of all trades, he can tend to 20 different experiments or the private, whatever it is that's up there. Um, that starts reducing the desire to have the CubeSat of your own as more just a package that's being delivered and taken care of. Hmm. And um, again, the problem with the CubeSat is that it is very short duration lifespan. Right? And uh, in many cases on a space station like that, you might instead just be renting project space, whether you need it for three months, a year, whatever it is, it's that amount of time, 10 years, right? Um, but the CubeSats are very vulnerable. They are vulnerable to damage. They're, they're not secure. Um, they have to have some way of transmitting, you know? Mm. Um, they have the, the same problem you have with anything that's micro-sized, designed to operate independently. You've got limited options. You have to include a power source on it. You have to provide some guidance, communication, how much easier is if you can scrap all that and not have to pay the launch cost on that because it's on a facility that's someone going to take care of that. So there will always going to be a demand for some amount of microsats, especially when you start like, I want to go check out a bunch of asteroids, see which ones have gold on them. I send the smallest asteroid, the smallest little camera I can that's cheap, you know, but at the same time for a lot of other projects, you want that attended. You don't want to have to do redundancy of all the little components that have nothing to do with what you're doing. You want something where you can actually point a finger at someone and say, you owe us money for having messed up this, this failure or fault on your end. And, um, you know, it's probably going to be, in many cases, a lot easier to get funding for a project you're setting up to one of those existing space stations than to just mm -hmm. a, a CubeSat for it. Okay. So sooner or later, this stuff is going to be like delivering a package to somebody's house or a, an office building or something like that, or something a factory that building. contains a lot of this stuff. And of course, okay. there'll be phases on exactly, you know, how, how commercialized is space at that point? How privatized is it? What sort of rules are going on? But there will be, in most cases, more advantages to having in a facility that's being tended and upkept than at, at just floating out in space on its own where it could get damaged, sabotaged, or go into pieces and damage other people's stuff and get you sued. You know? <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming back on and uh, look forward nice to maybe time. talking to you again in the spring. Uh, my guest today has been Isaac Arthur. Isaac, why don't you tell the folks where they can run into you and hear your wonderful voice more? Well, you can find me on iTunes, SoundCloud, my website, IsaacArthur.net, or of course, every Thursday morning on YouTube at uh, Isaac Arthur, Science of Futurism with Isaac Arthur. That's right. And I also follow you on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on, Jason.